Hello, and welcome to another special, almost lockdown episode of Material Matters with me, Grant Gibson. As regular listeners will know, the idea behind the show is that I speak to a designer, maker, artist or architect about material or technique with which they're intrinsically linked and discover how it changed their lives and careers. Now, usually we do this by visiting the guest workshop or studio, but for the time being, we're making do by recording over the internet instead. And today it gives me huge pleasure to be chewing the fat with Fernando Lapos. Although born in Paris, the up-and-coming designer spent his formative years in Mexico City. Subsequently, he returned to France before studying product design at Central St. Martins in London, graduating in 2012 with a range of pieces made from blown sugar. Since then, he has created products from the Loof of Fruit and Sizel. However, he's probably best known for Toto Moxley, a colourful and extremely beautiful veneer made from the husks of Mexican corn. The product was included in last year's Food Bigger Than The Plate at the Victoria and Albert Museum, as well as being shortlisted for the London Design Museum's Beasley Designs for the Year in 2018. Lapos says his work is preoccupied with sustainability, the loss of biodiversity, community disenfranchisement and the politics of food. Fernando, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Gren. No, it's my pleasure. So look, usually, as I said in the intro, we do these interviews in our guest studios or workshops. Um, I know you have a place in East London, but you're not there at the moment. So um, where precisely are you? Um, So right now I'm in Mexico City, but I've been mainly working in the village where I developed Atomosle, which is in the in the mountains in the south of Mexico. So I'm sort of between Mexico City and this little village. Um, uh, yeah, I've just been sort of self-quarantining in both places and, and trying to, to work uh, as best as I can. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, this podcast is emphatically not about the virus, but we can't really avoid it. Um, I mean, what is it like in Mexico? How is it affecting day-to-day life? Um, so right now we're actually arriving to the sort of peak moment of the, of the epidemic here. And although, you know, there's uh, strict rules uh, regarding public places and things like that, we don't have an official lockdown and we seem to be coping all right. Although, you know, it's hard to, to tell here because a lot of people can't really self-isolate. So, you know, especially poorer people, they, they have to go out and work and it's hard to really quantify how badly it is affecting people here. But I don't know. It's, um, you know... I'm trying to do my best to be as responsible as I can mm. while still working with, with the farmers that I usually work with. Yeah, pre-virus, what was your routine? How would you split your time between the studio in London and Mexico? I sort of have this um, thing that I do where I come to Mexico and I sort of focus a lot on sourcing the materials, talking to the people, um, establishing the connections that need to be established with with everyone that I work with here. And then I take all of these materials back to London. And I suppose that's where, you know, I spend more time to really kind of focus more on the material, start to develop new techniques to transform it. And that's where most of the design work happens. That's also where, you know, it is in England where I think mostly about production, about how to then bring all of those all of that development back to Mexico and then teach it to people that produce it here. So that's usually how I split my time. I, I come to Mexico about three or four times a year, you know, for periods of up to a month at a time. Um, and then the rest of the year I'm in London just, just sort of developing everything. 
I mean, obviously, materials are essential to your practice. And as I alluded to in the intro, um, you've worked with sisal uh, and the loofah fruit. Um, but the one I'm keen to concentrate on today is this extraordinarily beautiful and colourful veneer made from corn husks um, called Toto Mushle, uh, which, as you said, is made in the village of uh, Tony Wexler in the southwest of the country. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the background to the material? Because it seems to me to be a story that involves well, macroeconomics, heritage, food culture and design. Uh, there's a very personal narrative in there as well. Um, yeah. Perhaps in the first place, we could uh, maybe set the scene by explaining exactly how important corn is to Mexico. Yes, for sure. Yeah, I mean, as, as you say, you know, corn is sort of extremely important in Mexico. It's it's uh, it's the main grain uh, here. It's it's the equivalent to our bread, basically, to our wheat. And you could say that without corn, you wouldn't have had. Uh, sort of the big civilizations of Mexico. So culturally, it's very important because uh, the discovery of corn allowed uh, for the settlement of cultures like the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Olmecs, etc. You know, and it's something that has carried on until today. When I say the discovery of corn, that's also uh, an important thing to mention because corn is sort of considered the first man-made plant in the sense that corn doesn't grow naturally in in the wild the way we know it, you know. I mean, obviously, man has uh, refined most of the grains and vegetables that we have nowadays, but corn is completely different to its closest wild uh, relative. So what we know as corn uh, today is the result of a mutation from a wild plant called teosintle, uh, which was then selectively bred for close to 9,000 years to produce this huge diversity of, of, of the corn that we have nowadays. Um, so even though uh, in most of the world, you know, we just know corn as the yellow sweet corn, there's hundreds of varieties and thousands of sub-varieties. And it is the most adaptable grain uh, in the world. You know, it can grow virtually anywhere from, you know, Mm. the north of Canada and places where it's, you know, frozen half of the year to deserts in the Sahara. It's it's a very, very versatile plant. And that is testament to, you know, this ingenuity of of agriculture, uh, which, which allow for these big civilizations in Mexico to flourish. So... Yeah, corn is, you know, the most important sort of uh, grain in our diet. So it's extremely important for gastronomical purposes, uh, but also for biodiversity and for the livelihood of, of many, many people in Mexico. It seems to me that the story here is is really entwined with your own background, because you grew up in Mexico City, although, as we said, you were born in Paris. Your father was a baker and your mother an artist. In fact, you come from a, a long line of bakers. Your great-grandfather emigrated from the French-Italian Alps to set up a baking business. Um, were you not encouraged into the family firm, Fernando? <laughs> yeah, I guess I was. I mean, you know, I, I remember when I was a kid, we we used to go to the, f- I mean, this was quite a large bakery, right? So it was almost, almost like a small factory. So we used to go to the, the bakery to, to help my dad, especially after Christmas, you know, which is the, the busiest time. And 
you know, he would have us crack, I don't know, 5,000 eggs in a day or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think my dad was, was sort of grooming us to eventually, you know, um, maybe take over or to be interested in it. Um, but it just didn't work out that way. And I don't know, I think, you know, funnily enough, I'm really into cooking. I'm really, really into cooking. Mm. But I don't go anywhere near an oven for baking. I, I, I'm really bad at making <laughs> bread. Uh, and maybe, I don't know. I think, I think I couldn't, I didn't want to deal with the pressure of being, you know, the fifth generation of bakers. Um, so I, I think I, I, I was trying to concentrate more on maybe my mother's side of the influence, you know, which was more right. on the arts. Um, but yeah, you know, there's always been this sort of, um, preoccupation with, with, you know, the sensitivity of food, the sensitivity of, of the arts combined. Um, so maybe that's, you know, I, I think for both things, you need a, a huge amount of observation capabilities, you know, to be able to, to tell something right or why something works or doesn't and to be very observant. And so, so yeah, I think, I think I got those two things from my parents, you know, my, 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 the sort of food preoccupation with food and quality of ingredients from my dad's side and then the artistic side from my mom. And, and was there a point in your childhood where you decided I wanted to become a designer? Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I, I didn't know that, you know, the profession of designer really existed. Um, but I wanted to be an inventor. At some point, I wanted to be a biologist. And actually, I mean, I sort of started to become a maker from a very young age um, because for some reason it was very encouraged in my house to, you know, if I wanted a toy or something, I, I, I had to make a toy. Uh, so, you know, we were back then we, we had a period where we weren't living in Mexico City. We were living more in the countryside. So we had a lot of access to, you know, things like wood and things like that. And, you know, my parents have always been a little bit... Um, you know, free and almost irresponsible with some things because, for example, you know, they allowed me to have a little machete when I was like seven, eight years old, you know. So I would, I would, you know, hack away at a piece of wood and make like spinning tops or slingshots or things like that. So, you know, even though I, I wasn't aware of the profession of designer, I was, I was always encouraged from a young age to, you know, if I wanted something, I, I should make it and mm. therefore design it. And when did you first visit Tony Wixler? It was a place you obviously immediately took some kind of liking to, and I'm wondering why. Yeah, so we went to Tony Wixler because there was a couple that um, were working for my parents, the, um, Delfino and Maria. And Delfino was uh, sort of like my dad's right-hand man, you know. He would all, run all sorts of errands for him, organize uh, deliveries. Um, he would drive us around sometimes and... Uh, Maria was in the house, uh, mainly helping my mom uh, with her classes, um, preparing food, etc. So they became really, really close to to us. And um, yeah, um, well, actually, I just recently found out why we went to Tonawisla the first time because I had a completely different idea of why this happened. But mm. I was just talking to them last week and. And, uh, you know, they, they told me the story. Basically, what happened, it's a little bit intense, but, um, you know, Mexico City in the 90s was, was a fairly dangerous place to be in. You know, it was one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And, um, and Delfino was driving uh, my dad's car. 
And I don't know, there was an attempt for hijacking the car. And he decided it would be a good idea to to fight the hijackers off. Um, and he managed to do that. I don't know how. But in the process, he got hit. And, and and he had to have surgery afterwards. You know, he was he was a bit hurt. And so he had to have like a couple months off, obviously, from work. And my dad asked him, you know, where, where do you want to, where do you want to spend that time? And he asked my dad if he could go back to his village and, and you know, just rest up there. So my dad drove him to Tonawixla. Mm. Um, so it was actually my dad that went there the first time and... and he was quite impressed with the village, you know, because it's just in such a remote area um, and it's so peaceful that, I don't know, my dad just just really was quite impressed with it. And uh, Delfino was like, well, you know, if, if, if you ever want to come and bring the kids, you know, welcome to come over. So so we actually went and visited Delfino towards the end of his, um, you know, how do you call that, convalescence. Um, right. and yeah, we, we, that's, that's, that's why we came to Tona Wixla. So, you know, this all happened because of a kick to the groin. So, you know, <laughs> we were just kind of <laughs> laughing about it. You know, if, if Delfino hadn't had been kicked in the groin, maybe we would have never found Tona Wixla. This um, never would have happened. This whole project. You were six when you first went, apparently. Yeah, we, I was six years old. I was six years old. And like I said, you know, Mexico city was, was super dangerous. So, you know playing out in the street was out of the question and you know everything had to be sort of planned and organized and in advance and you would have to only go to people's houses and you know it was it was Mexico City was very stressful back then so mm -hmm. for us as kids it was it was a total release you know to be able to go to Tona Wixla um and and we loved it so yeah it became sort of our summer camp you know and right. I think it was it was great for my parents as well because it was a lot cheaper or free you know as opposed to pay for <laughs> us to go to a summer camp um so that's what we did for years um from you know when we were six years old until we went back to france um when i was about 16 so yeah it's a solid 10 years so i'm interested i mean i mean obviously tony wixler's had this profound effect on on your work but i'm also interested in what effects growing up somewhere like mexico city might have had i don't know i think the contrast between both places was was very formative for me, you know. Um, you know, like I said, Mexico City was was just enormous. You know, um, twenty something million people, one of the most dangerous cities in the world, one of the most polluted as well. Um, so I think for me, growing up, it was very, I was very aware about sort of the concentration of people and and the the environmental issues of, of, of a metropolis like Mexico city, you know, because you could, you could feel it, you know, we would, we would have days where we couldn't go out and play um, because the, the pollution was so bad that, you know, the government had to issue like bans on, on people being outside. And then by contrast, you would go to Tona Weeks line. It was, it was, you know, super pure air. Um, so there was, there was that on that side. And then on the other side, there was a social aspect of it. You know, Mexico City, because it was so dangerous, you kind of, um, you know, Mexico is very divided and the social classes are very marked. So, you know, us being sort of 
of European descent and more white, you tend to hang out mostly with people of your background, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people live in big houses with big fences, with big gates, with guards. Um, and you rarely interact with people that are, you know, quote unquote, lower class, which, you know, um, obviously, by no coincidence, tend to be of more indigenous descent. So going to Tonawixla was an incredible exercise as well in sort of breaking those barriers because I think we were quite lucky to experience that when we were young children because you don't have the prejudices of, you know, when people start to grow up. Uh, So you're a lot more open to interact with, you know, people in of you know that were family members of Delfino or people in their village and we therefore had an experience that almost no white Mexicans ever had which was to really get to you know for example participate in a corn harvest um, you know get to carry out some of the traditions that you would see in these small villages which are completely different from the city um, you know, Sometimes when I give talks now, nowadays, I talk about this, this differences, you know, and, and I remember I was giving a talk in, in Reykjavik in Iceland and I was explaining, you know, I think nowadays there will be more things in common between you and Reykjavik and someone, a white person in Mexico City than that white person in Mexico City and someone indigenous that only lives maybe a couple of hours away. Mm. So being able to to trespass these barriers, the social barriers, I think was was extremely formative for me, um, because you know both my sister and I, you know, started to realize these sort of unbalances as well socially. Um, that you know, I think as we started to grow up, we became more and more aware of. You moved back to Paris when you were fifteen or sixteen. Yeah, uh, that must have been a bit of a culture shock, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was. I mean, um, you know, we were, uh, I mean, we moved back to Paris. It was the first time we were um, in an international school, you know, before we were just in a regular Mexican school. So this exposure to people from all over the world all of a sudden um, was extremely eye-opening. And obviously, I think it put things even more in perspective. Um, it, I think it was it was it was it was extremely you know I think the most formative uh, moments of my life were definitely the moment we went to Tonal Wixla and the moment we went to Paris um, because it gives you the sort of micro and and macro uh, lens you know of the world you, you 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 we had the privilege of being able to witness what happens in a in a small indigenous village and then in in a global city you know and then follow that with london i mean that was that was even more so yeah i think i think this is what's i think um so interesting about my the experiences that I've had the privilege of of having, you know, which is, which is to be able to zoom in and out, um, and to have this sort of global perspective um, while at the same time having this very localized experiences. Yeah, I'm intrigued because you did the product design course at Central St Martins, um, obviously in London. Um, why that course? Why the decision to move to London? Um, I thought Paris. Design schools were a little bit square, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was uh, there were very long programs. It was all uh, very, very sort of 
contrived. So yeah, I've never actually I I had absolutely no attraction to England. I have never even visited England. I just decided, yeah, St. Martin's looks like a fun place to be in. Mm. And um, you know, let's go without even ever being in England. Um so yeah, it was it was it was it was great. And you graduated with kind of, well, I guess they were kind of almost like glassware, but made from sugar. The interest in food had already, and food design had already developed by this stage. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, my, my course in Central St. Martins um, was interesting in the sense that I, I learned all the skills of, of, of design for sure, you know, and, and to be able to communicate ideas in a clear way and to present it. And, you know, I learned great, great skills in design, but I think I was a little bit frustrated with how producty the product design course was. You know, I was very, mm. very focused on sort of mass consumption, you know, and packaging. And, and this was at a time where, um, I mean, I guess they were right on the money in the sense of how they were structuring the course because they're, the pronostic was that you know it was it was designing for the age of personal computers, personal phones. Um, you know this was in two thousand and eight. So, so yeah, it was very uh, very much about products. But I was a little bit frustrated with with yeah how much plastic we were using, <laughs> how permanent it was all being. You know, and 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 so. I started to develop my own little projects, you know, the Lufa project started out of that, you know, as a self-directed sort of thing while I was a student. And then with with the glassware, it, it was my way of being like, okay, let's try to apply everything I've learned here, you know, all the industrial techniques. So in, in, in this case, it was like, you know, designing with 3D printing and rotational molding and everything to make a rotational mold. But the l- last step was like, okay, let's play with this. Instead of using resin or instead of using glass, uh, sorry, instead of using plastic, let's use sugar because sugar behaves like glass. I saw that, um, you know, I think I think I came across that idea when I saw how they made uh, glass props for cinema. Right. And um, yeah, I was like, well, it you know, it behaves just like glass, but it has the advantages of, you know, being... Well, first of all, really cheap, which was great when I was a student, you know, because with 10 pounds, you got 10 kilos of sugar and you had a lot of <laughs> things to experiment with. You could do it at home um, because back then we couldn't use anything with fire or heat at school because of health and safety things. So, you know, I turned my kitchen into this sort of little workshop and um, yeah, I started to do my glasses I got some interesting results, and this was um, uh, maybe a year before graduating. And at the time, I was interning for Beth and Wood, which I think you've had on your show before. We have, we have, <laughs> yeah. And so she was great. She was really supportive of, of of the idea, and she was like, "Well, look, you know, we have a show for London Design Festival, and why don't you make a cocktail experience with your glasses?" You know, so that was a, a really great push for me to you know turn it into a reality before even graduating. And, um, yeah, when I graduated, I, I had this project that was already very, very solid, mm. uh, you know, for a BA because this wasn't even a master's and, um, that actually allowed me to stay in London, funnily enough, because back then I, I didn't have a EU passport and, um, it was really hard to stay and, and that project allowed me to win, uh, 
some somewhat of a scholarship and a special visa um, to be right. able to stay in the UK. Um, and so for, <laughs> but it was it had it it, it had it it's um, sort of conditions, you know. Um, I had to make a certain amount of money. So I eventually had to turn that into a business uh, because right. that w- my visa was depending on that. I had to I had to be turning over a certain amount of money. I was interested. Yeah, did you have a sense of how you're going to do that when you graduated? Not at all. But part of mm. the scholarship was that it was it was you know um, the visa was a graduate entrepreneur visa. So the you know um, St Martin's or UAL had this sort of business course that that um, you know I I had some sessions with. And uh, intellectual property, and you know, they they kind of they gave you some good support to to be able to turn it into a business, and I did, and you know, I did make some money for the first couple of years, but it eventually started to feel like, you know, I was some sort of glorified catering service. You know, it started <laughs> it started off with some interesting commissions, and yeah, some interesting things with galleries and the design scene, etc., and it quickly sort of devolved into making Christmas parties for like insurance companies, you know? So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was, it was terrible. You know, I was like, okay, this is it's time to, it's time to just, you know, finish this project. And, uh, and that's when I decided to take some time off and, and I went to Mexico to do a residence and, and that's where Toto Moxley started to, to happen. Yeah, let's let's talk about Toto Moxley because um, we have to, we have taken a bit of a digression, but I think it's important to have learned about your background to then understand why this project came about. Yeah, so, what, it was in 2015, 2016. How did it begin? What, what was the kind of genesis of it? So, yeah, I you know I applied for this residency, which was which was a very long residency. It was three months. Um, which was perfect because I was a little bit tired of London at the time and I was really worn out from all the sugar making. Um, so I, I subletted my studio in, Me- in London and, and, I, and I moved to Mexico. And the place where the residency was happening was in a cultural center, um, which was started by an artist called Francisco Toledo, who... Um, passed a couple of years ago but Francisco Toledo was was a very accomplished artist but he was also a very fierce activist and um, he basically became sort of the patron of the arts of the city of Oaxaca in the southwest of Mexico. Oaxaca has become this sort of center for the arts you know it's a very mm-hmm. interesting city. Uh, it's always been very active um, with preserving their culture but Toledo was really a force that that kind of gave it this exposure. Um, he started the Ethnobotanical Garden there, the Cultural Center for the Graphic Arts, um, uh, numerous libraries along the city, and uh, amongst the many buildings that he founded is the, there's the Casa, which used to be in an old textile factory just outside of the city of Oaxaca. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful colonial building, and I had the privilege of having, you know, board, uh, food, and studio for three months there. Um, so, so I arrived there, and I arrived in a very interesting time because Mexico was basically deciding whether or not they were going to put a ban on genetically modified maize, um, and this was 
something that started because of protests and activism from everything from artists to chefs, um, which then, you know, grew and grew and, and it sort of uh, got taken by the general population and there were massive protests. Um, and eventually, you know, the Supreme Court had to, had to come to a decision about it. Um, so this was exactly at the time where, where, where I arrived to the residency. The residency was meant to be about food. And so it was a little bit of a no-brainer, you know, to, to try to tackle the, the issue of corn. So this is really interesting because it seems to me it's all tied into the, the changes that have been ascribed to the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA for short. Exactly. Um, which for the listener's benefit is a trading block between the US, Canada and Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, it was an idea that was part of Ronald Reagan's manifesto in 1980 when he was elected mm -hmm. uh, and was finally enacted in 1994. The consensus appears to be that it has been useful for some parts of the Mexican economy, particularly the car industry, um, but it's been a disaster for agriculture. So I guess the question is why? Well, basically, uh, we've always been a country of farmers, you know, and, and, mm. and, and, and we're very successful at producing food and... and um, um, we were also very protective of our market um, and especially uh, how things were grown. You know, it was very, very strict regarding fertilizers, regarding pesticides, regarding chemicals and in, in industry, in, sorry, in agriculture. What happened with NAFTA was that the country wanted to modernize, you know, or at least the, the presidency of Mexico at the time wanted to really bring Mexico to sort of quote unquote modernity to turn it into a, a, an economic power in Latin America. And for that, we needed manufacturing jobs. And so the, the deal, you know, is very complicated, but mm. essentially it opened uh, the opportunity for American manufacturers to come to Mexico and set up shop here with a lot cheaper wages um, in exchange of also having a lot of agricultural products from the States uh, to to come to Mexico. Um, but for that, we had to relax a lot of our laws regarding agriculture. This is the macroeconomics bit I was talking about, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, what happened was we opened our agricultural market, but especially the corn market, to uh, American production. So, we started to put small maize farmers in Mexico in direct competition with, you know, huge farms in Iowa, you know, where you mm -hmm. have miles and miles and miles and miles of monocultures. And what that did was it lowered the price of corn uh, hugely in Mexico by almost two thirds um, from 1993 to 1994. So the only way for, for Mexicans to really, um, compete against this this market where corn is grown, you know, I'm talking about the American market, you know, corn is grown with a lot of chemical additives. Uh, it's heavily subsidized as well um, by the American government. And um, you're obviously using very efficient machinery. Um, you know, we had to sort of, we were forced to adopt the same system if we wanted to compete with them. Yeah. Um, and so that's when a lot of the seed manufacturers started to peddle um, with the help of the Mexican government, it must be said, um, uh, 
sort of welfare programs, especially for the poor Mexican countryside, where farmers were given um, genetically modified seeds, um, chemical uh, fertilizers, weed killers, and insect killers. And yeah, the the expectation was that we had to produce you know, at least twice of the corn that we had um, the year before to be able to compete. So that was really in complete um, opposition to the traditional methods of growing corn that has b- have been practiced here for, you know, thousands of years. Um, basically, corn has always been planted in Mexico in combination with other two plants, uh, beans and squash. Right, And this is something that was discovered by ancient Mesoamericans about 7,000 years ago. Um, and what they discovered, because remember, corn is sort of this man-made plant. It has a really abnormal consumption of nitrogen from the soil. So if you only plant corn, your soils are completely eroded within a few years. Mm. But they figured out a way of of balancing this out by combining with these two other plants. What happens is corn grows really quickly um, and it's planted with beans right next to it. The beans start to, I'm talking about black beans, they start to kind of climb the corn plant. And so the beans are protected from insects because they're high up, but the beans have these little nodules in their roots, which fix nitrogen back into the soil. And that uh, makes the soil fertile all the time. And, and you don't need any fertilizers, any added fertilizers. And then the squash is planted about a foot away from this because the squash starts to grow really quickly on the, on the soil. And it sort of carpets the soil with this big, um, wide leaves and it blocks humidity in the soil. So it, allows for the farmers to use a lot less water, but also it blocks sunlight. So it prevents weeds from growing. So mm. it's a really genius system, you know, it's, it's, a, it's weed control. It's uh, a system which fixes nitrogen, which is what fertilizers would normally do. And you have um, three crops in one. And this has always been the traditional method. Um, what happened was, with this sort of pressure from, you know, this macroeconomics, um, there's, there were these sort of solutions that obviously work in the American Midwest, but are very detrimental to rural Mexico in very mountainous areas where um, by using especially the herbicides, the weed killers, you kill absolutely everything besides from that genetically modified corn that the same companies produce. Mm. So that w- that put an end to the milpa system, which had been in constant practice for th- 7,000 years. And in turn, that created really, really bad erosion. Um, not to mention that we started to lose a lot of the diversity of, of, of these corns because all of the sudden... The market had fixed prices. They were only buying the one corn, which was, yes, extremely productive and heavy, especially. And this is an important thing, heavy. The grains are very heavy. But that doesn't mean they're nutritious. That just means that by weight and volume, uh, you know, you get a lot more profit. So that was 
that was the general premise. You know, that's that's what was happening when I when I started to do this residency, and you know, like I said, I, it was I was in sort of the heart of all the activism for for all of this because of this cultural center. You know, this is where a lot of the protesters came to make their their you know their postcards for the protests and things like that. Um, so it was really interesting to see how everyone was so politically active. Um, but I didn't really see anyone proposing many sort of economical solutions to the issue, you know, because it is an economical problem as well. Um, and I think that's where design can, can be an interesting option, you know, um, as opposed to art, for example, because art can be very powerful for activism. But design has this added advantage of also thinking about commerce, you know, and economics. Um, so, yeah, I set myself the challenge of trying to, you know, potentially come to somewhat of a contribution. So, so had the idea already seeded before you went back to Tony Wixler, or was it a visit to Tony Wixler which engendered this idea? So I developed the material, you know, this idea of turning the leaves into the veneer um, that happened through the residency. But I just hadn't realized how bad the issue was until I went to Tonawixla. So I went to Tonawixla because I was looking for leaves, for colored leaves. Mm. Um, You know, I, I was... Because I actually made most of my tests in Oaxaca with regular colored leaves because it was so hard to find you know the the colorful ones you would go to the markets in Oaxaca and Oaxaca is supposed to be you know one of the most traditional places in Mexico and even there it was extremely rare to find a bundle of of colorful leaves you know you would have to go to these merchants you know that sell those leaves for cooking and I, you know, they would jump in their warehouses trying to look for the, you know, maybe one or two bundles. It was really, mm. really rare. And that was really something that shocked me quite a bit because, you know, it had only been maybe 10 years since I left Mexico. And I was like, you know, how could things change so much in 10 years? How could we have lost all of this in only 10 years? So I decided to go to Tonawixla because for me, that was the most remote place that I knew. And I was like, you know, for sure, that place would have been unaffected by all of this. Um, so, yeah, I went back to Tonal Weeks after 10 years of not being there, after, you know, maybe eight of not seeing Delfino. Um, so when I got there, it was quite shocking to see that the village was completely empty. You know, I remember this very sort of bustling little village and when i went there it was like all the streets were empty um when you're driving towards the center of the of the town you 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 drive past all the fields and all the fields were abandoned um and so it was it was very eerie you know to to find that and and it was it was quite shocking and 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 quite sank quite sad to be frank with you and um, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I arrived to Delfino's house and he wasn't there, but Maria, his wife was there and she was like, well, let's, let's go look for Delfino. And, and I, I ended up, um, driving up a mountain, 
which was completely eroded. You know, you saw all these stones were sticking out of the soil. This was cultivation areas, which were before were, you know, very fertile cornfields. And I found Delfino there with a group of men, um, you know, most of them in their late 60s, uh, digging holes because what they were doing is they were starting to make um, sort of barriers for water, for catching water and for retaining soil. And maybe I should backtrack a little bit. Um, this erosion basically was caused by the shift in agriculture, you know, this sort of one solution fits all, uh, you know, adapting this American super labor, uh, so super effective agricultural techniques with chemicals, which had a completely uh, destructive effect in Tona Wixla. Um, because they stopped this traditional method of planting and they only planted corn, they exhausted their soils straight away. Um the this region is 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 extremely hot you know it's it's almost a desert so the soil is very very fragile and if you don't take care of it it's gone within a couple of seasons and that's exactly what happened so although it was extremely disheartening to see um the empty village because essentially what happened was you know people couldn't grow anything anymore and if you have a, a village which, you know, sustis, uh, you know, just lives off agriculture and all of a sudden they can't do that, they all had to migrate. And, you know, what's really ironic is that uh, they all migrated to the United States. Hence the wall and, and Trumpism, as it were. Yeah, I don't know. It's very, it's, it's, it's very, very strange when you think about it. You know, like we force these indigenous villages to produce um, like Americans and broke a system that worked fine. Then they were all forced to migrate to the United States. And at the same time, you know, another big change in the village that I noticed was that the very few businesses that are open there still are all um, sort of corner shops that basically sell Coca-Cola and Lay's and all of these junk food, American junk food, which is essentially made with corn star, uh, sorry, corn syrup. So in a way, it's like they lost their ancestral corn only to be replaced by corn, which is transformed into a very, you know, um, something that is very bad for your health. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's very, I don't know, it's just very indicative of a lot of things that are wrong with the system. Mm. Um, but like I said, at the same time, it was extremely encouraging to see Delfino and these old men digging holes to plant cactus to stop the erosion, uh, to hold the soil and the water to, with the hopes of one day being able to, you know, plant again. And, you know, Delfino is now 74 years old. So obviously they're not doing those efforts for themselves. They're doing it for my generation. Mm. So I thought that was extremely encouraging, you know, and that's, that's, I think where I was like, okay, this project can't just be a material exploration thing, you know, something that is, that lives only for a couple of seasons um, in magazines, you know, or design shows. This has to turn into 
a proper business. This has to mm. really be a long-lasting project. And, mm. you know, I, I, I see this project as a life project, a lifelong project. So you had this notion of going to one of the world's biggest seed banks, re-establishing traditional varieties of corn, mm -hmm. and then turning its husks into veneer for kind of pieces of furniture um, and finishes. Um, I mean, you're quite right. It was never going to be a short-term project. I mean, was it a hard sell to uh, to the village, I wonder? Um, it was at the beginning. Because I'm guessing not many of them have been to uh, Design Miami, for instance. No. <laughs> no. No. And I think, you know, I had a core of people that were interested, but in order for this to work, is you, you really need numbers. You need uh, quite a, a, a large group of people to subscribe to this idea. Um I think it was what was challenging at the beginning was that I wasn't fully aware that obviously they were a little bit distrusting of someone that is not from the village mm. to come and offer them seeds again, you know, because I mean, they've been fucked over numerous times that way <laughs> um, by government project programs, you know, or by people from outside of their village to come and give them seeds. So um, and actually what you mentioned with the seed bank came later, you know, at the beginning, right. I, I was just saying, okay, you know what, let's just try and get you some colored seeds, you know? And I was so naive. I really didn't know much about agriculture. So I was just, I was just trying to source seeds of color and gave it to them. And I was not fully aware of the complications of, of reintroducing a seed, you know, um, corn is... You can't just be like, oh, well, this seed comes from a similar weather. No, it has to be the exact altitude, for example, you know, and, and there's a lot of other environmental uh, sort of traits that are very, very key to successfully reintroducing a seed. So um, at the beginning, you know, we, we planted once in Delfino's uh, patch of land and, and they didn't do very well. Um, we didn't have a good result. So a lot of people became a little bit disillusioned with it. Um, so I think, um, but we did have some leaves. So I started to do some samples and I did a few prototypes of, of furniture and things like that. And what happened was, um, you know, this is around end of 2016, uh, beginning of 2017, there was a competition uh, by something called the Dutch Institute of Food Design. Mm. Um, which, yeah, we're launching a competition on food design. And um, there was a prize, you know, uh, uh, monetary prize, I suppose, because I needed money as well. You know, I mean, I was still kind of financing this with some sugar glasses, but, you know, I was I was still quite young and, you know, London rent, etc. You know, I, I was a bit short on cash. So I decided to apply for this competition. And for that, I had to create a video Um and that was the first time where I, I sort of realized also the power of storytelling in a very narrative way. You know, I think uh, a strength of the project is, 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 is the story, definitely, and how you tell it is extremely important. So I put together a video that sort of, you know, told the story up to that point and my future plans with it. And I had to put it on online for the competition because there was a jury prize and there was a general pub public prize uh, through voting online. And that video, I mean, 
I guess it became viral in Mexico. I had close to, you know, 400,000 views on it. Mm. Um, mm. And so that opened a, a bunch of doors. And one of them was the seed bank. So that was also really interesting how design and design communication uh, started to do links that weren't there before. Because, you know, the the Simit seed bank um, basically has the biggest collection of May seed in the world. Um, they're a very important institution and they have a program where they actually constantly actively try to donate seeds to reintroduce, uh, very critically endangered species and varieties. And one of their main problems is that a lot of people are not aware of this resource. And so it was really interesting to see how they became aware of my project through this video and how, because of that, I started to link them with a lot of these communities. Um, so that's when we started to get professional help. You know, we, right. uh, I started to talk to Denise Kostich, who is the director of the seed bank. And she was like, okay, well, you know, what have you done to try to reintroduce this? Did you take like, altitude measurements and I was like no you know <laughs> I was like well okay that's the first mess up you know so they they told me how to measure altitude they asked me for some soil samples and all sorts of things and um they basically did like a curation of seeds from their vault they selected 16 seeds that they felt had the right traits uh for this area we brought Delfino and a group of the farmers to the seed bank, which was really, really interesting as well, because, you know, they're incredibly knowledgeable of agriculture, but of traditional agriculture. So it was really interesting to see how they reacted to sort of being exposed to a scientific institution and to, and to see how a lot of their traditional methods were actually validated by scientists. You know, they were mm -hmm. saying, well, you're doing the right thing because, you know, you need to fix nitrogen and you need to this, do this and that. And yes, that happens with the beans. And yes, if you do this, you're doing the right stuff. So it was, it was really interesting to do that. You know, what you see as the finalized object is the result of so many steps before that, um, from agriculture to, to science, to biology, you know, to design in general. And community. Um, and community. So, so, so we're all we're, we're there. We've got the background. How is the actual veneer itself created? So it's sort of developed over the years. But what we do now is um, we we harvest the corn at the end of the season. So you know when when you eat corn in England, you're really eating immature corn. You know, it's corn that is not fully ripe yet. You know, corn is normally really hard at the end of the season. Um, so you wait until the plants are completely dry. Um, then we we cut the um, the cobs off, which has all the all the husks around them. And then <laughs> I actually I was just designing this last week uh, a machine to well, it's it's a piece of furniture really that has this circular blade where you cut the end of the corn off and then you have all the leaves basically that come off. Um, and then you take the middle section of that leaf and you flatten it with an iron. Um, so then you have a, a flat piece of corn. And then we uh, 
attach that with um it's kind of like a like a latex contact glue so it's a natural latex glue um and then we attach that to um recycled cardboard um and so that is a, a technique that is quite similar to how a lot of wood veneers are are produced you know a lot of what's called paper backed veneers it's essentially that it's just uh uh, a really thin slice of wood with paper on the back. Yeah, yeah. So we do the same with corn. Um, and then we we have a, a hydraulic press, uh, which now is a big fancy hydraulic press, but we started off with like something that was spring operated and you would have to just like hang yourself from it. And, and we use like cutting dies, which are essentially like cookie cutters, you know, which cut the, the, the shapes uh, out of the, the corn. And because we're limited by the size of the corn pieces, you know, I mean, we, we can only grow corn, you know, to a certain amount of centimeters. Um, we use a technique like marquetry. So marquetry, which is a traditional wood uh, working technique, is where you use especially rare, rare woods, you know, like rosewood or tulip wood or, you know, expensive yeah. woods that you don't have big sheets of. And... Um, you cut pieces out of it and you sort of make a puzzle at the end, you know, and so you combine all of them onto a cheaper um, surface like plywood or MDF or whatever. So we do that, you know, we take all these pieces of corn uh, cut from the machine into these shapes and they're all hand assembled. And depending on what we do, we, we back it to different surfaces. So, for example, for furniture, we can, we can laminate it directly to plywood or something. Uh, but for wall interiors, we're now laminating them onto shin, uh, thin sheets of cork, recycled wine stoppers. Mm. And, um, yeah, and so, so we have a system now where it's these sort of um, jagged tiles that tessellate and snap together and you can make really big surfaces with that um, and it all happens in Tonawixla in this little village in a workshop that we've been creating over the years um, and yeah we you know a lot of the development of the project has also been to develop the system you know how how do we I, I've had to go through a lot of pains, you know, and, uh, and a lot of thinking of how do you create a whole system of production in an area that doesn't have internet, that doesn't have phone, mm. doesn't have shops. You can't just go and buy the glue, you know, if you run out. So you have to be extremely organized. Um, and then how do you ship it from there to, you know, London? <laughs> so we have a system where, where we drive an hour and a half to the n nearest uh, sort of bigger village and there's a FedEx pickup point and, you know, we send it th with the couriers all over Europe. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really rewarding to see that you can prove to the village that there is value in what they have there. And you can also prove to the rest of the world that there is the opportunity to employ indigenous communities and, and to make them productive, you know, and, and it doesn't matter that they are isolated, you know, um, you can you can still include them in, you know, the global market without sacrificing their traditions.
And do the buyers, uh, wherever they may be in Europe or, or America, do, do they get the message when they buy the pieces? Or are they just interested in buying something that's a beautiful piece of furniture? I think you have different levels, you know. You have you have a lot of contractors that are just looking for, you know, they look at these sort of uh, train forecasting books, you know, where they just say, okay, you know, these are the next, you know, the new eco things. And so they're, they're just looking for it as a, uh, as a greenwashing utensil, I think, <laughs> for a lot mm. of the projects, which I'm fine with, you know. Um, but then you also have a core clientele, which is really into the story. And, and, and they almost, you know, they don't mind spending the money because of the backstory and they post about it and they talk about it. Um, so, yeah, I think there's different levels of engagement. But I think the story is a really big part of why this project works mm. because it's putting a face to where this material comes from. And it's, I don't know, I think, I think in a way what we do as a business, which is interesting, is that our main focus is not necessarily the end client. You know, I see, I see the business obviously not as a charity because it's not a charity. It's, it's, it's really something that works financially. Um, but it's a, it's a way of um, creating a business that is mainly for your employees and mainly for the natural environment of where you source your materials, you know? And, and I think that's, that's a really interesting way of, of approaching a design challenge, you know? It's yeah. this sort of like interspecies design. Like how do you design a system where both the environment and the people that work it, um, you know, are benefited. I mean, was it always an ambition to come back to Mexico and, and help create new industries to, to, to aid the rural economy? Had that been in the back of your mind? Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is, this is because of that personal attachment that I've had with the community, you know, since I'm a child. Um, I think you know, it's it's been extremely rewarding to be in London, to have this sort of global outlook to the world. But at the same time, I think with issues of sustainability and things like that, um, you know, if you're talking about sustainability and ecology, the conversation is very Euro-centered. It's very focused on um, issues of the West, Mm. And I don't think there's enough uh, people talking about the challenges that places like Africa and Latin America are going through, you know, because um, when you talk about sustainability there, you really talk about people and you talk about communities and you can't just expect people to protect their environment and to protect their resources if in the first hand, you can't protect them, you know. You have to create a situation where people's quality of life is increased because, you know, if it's going to be a matter of choosing whether to, you know, have education for your children or healthcare or whatever, and, and your only option is to cut down the trees in your backyard to, you know, sell the wood to pay for that, mm. you're going to do it, you know. You're, you're going to do it. So it's a lot of my projects are, are, yes, talking about materials, but through the materials, talking about the people that are so interlinked with them. 
and um and 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 yeah raising these issues of 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 injustice and inequality yeah i mean i, I was going to ask i mean presumably the project has had a profound effect on on the village and it's increased employment and employment for for maybe women who who haven't had uh, jobs in that village as far as i'm aware um i mean has the village had an effect on your practice yes definitely of course it has i think like um well for example i was a little bit um obsessed with this idea of developing the new material you know and that's because you suddenly jump on this treadmill of the design calendar you know where every milan you have to come up with a new thing and you know magazines are constantly hassling you every six months you know like are you working on a new you know wonder natural material um that we could publish you know um and and i feel like i was i was falling into that trap you know into being on this in this sort of um yeah this rush to come up with the next sustainable material and and, and it's bullshit you know it, it's it it doesn't work unless you can make it work as a system um mm. and that takes years you know and especially if you're working with agriculture it's really interesting to see how time is measured differently in different disciplines you know like I have a lot of magazines that are not interested in my projects anymore because, you know, it, they've been published. And so if you look at the um, expiration date on a lot of these projects in the design world, it's, you know, maximum five years uh, mm -hmm. if, if they want to be relevant. But then, for example, I've been getting a lot of press and I've been getting a fair amount of attention from um, agricultural magazines, you know, which is really, really interesting. And when you talk to agronomists and to, and to agricultures, you know, they're like, oh, you're just starting, you know, you're in your third or fourth season. I mean, you're not going to have a stable crop until maybe five or six years down the line, you know. And this is that that will be basically what where where the where the project can can start to go into that middle sort of development. So yes, you know, being designing with these people in mind, with Tona Wixler in mind, and you know, with the sizal is a similar thing um, with the agave fibers, you know, because you know, an, an agave takes seven years to grow, you know, mm. so in order to to source your material, you're you're talking about many many years. Um, so yeah, working with these people have, yeah, very, very profoundly changed how I, how I design, what my goals and expectations are, and also, um, have given me a lot more sort of peace of mind, you know, like I, 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 I used to be quite anxious about not having success straight away with a lot of these projects. And these projects have shown me that, um, you know, Toto Mosley especially has shown me that it takes years to be able yeah. to to do it properly. Because my, my final question, I think I've taken up a lot of your time, but my final question was going to be, generally, traditionally is, what your plans for the future are. But it sounds as if this is a long-term project. We will still be talking about this in seven years' time. Yeah. Um, it's constantly evolving, you know. Like, for example, right now, we finished the workshop, which used to be... It used to be a, a community um, building, which was a school as well. And it had been abandoned since 1995 uh, because everyone migrated. 
So, you know, the, the project has been financing the restoration of this building. And this is now not only my workshop, but it's also the office where they decide what happens to their lands because all of their lands are community owned, communally owned. And that's also where we're building a seed bank, for example. So we're now also going to have our own seed bank to be able to have a backup of everyone's seeds within the village. And that's a project that's going to take years, years and years and years. Um, and we're now, for example, thinking of ways of making sort of kits for people to be able to do at least half of the process directly in their house. So that means that we can expand to other communities in the area. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a project which is going to be very, very long term. And I'm quite excited for that. Well, very good. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Fernando. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Grant. Glad to be part of it. Really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. And to learn more about Toto Moxley and Fernando's other projects, go to fernandolapost.com. There are images from the interviews, as well as little films and other things on my Instagram page, Grant on Design. If you've enjoyed listening and want to see this podcast flourish, then please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this from. And if you feel so inclined, you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge at patreon.com forward slash material matters. You'll be helping to take the message of the importance of materials, skill, craft and design to a whole new audience. Thanks very much for listening and I hope you're all staying safe.